A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from Spectator and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week. After the sad passing of the longest serving monarch in British history, the great Queen Elizabeth II, Melanie McDonough reads her poignant piece on how Britain as a nation will be lesser without her. Then turning to politics and as we look ahead to a period of suspension of parliament as the nation mourns, Katie Balls gives us an update on how Liz Truss is shaking up Downing Street. And finally, Nigel Richardson, author of the new book The Accidental Detectorist, tells us how metal detecting has captured his imagination. First, Melanie McDonough. The loneliest thing about being as long-lived as the Queen, at 96, is that you have few or no contemporaries. Few people reach her age. Indeed, not that many people remember the time before she became Queen, in 1952, 70 years ago. She has been, simply by living for as long as she did, the one element of continuity in the life of the nation. In the 70 years of her reign, everything changed. Britain isn't the country it was then, for better and worse, but the Queen was a constant. Her presence in Parliament, at great events, on the BBC on Christmas Day, on stamps and currency, gave Britain an extraordinary psychological stability during a period of upheaval. She was, in her contained and dignified way, a carapace over the nation, an unseen and taken for granted protective presence. It's something you only notice when it's taken away. It would be trite to call her the nation's grandmother, but she fulfilled something of the same function as the oldest member of a family, someone who makes everyone else feel more secure for being rooted in the same soil. Like I say, this psychological carapace is only noticed when it's gone. And what's surprising is the extent of the shock and grief people have registered, even those you suppose were immune from respective persons or positions. It's terrifying in a family when its oldest member dies. It's the same with the life of a nation, when the head of state who has been present in the background of national life for so long is no more. The king is dead. Long live the king sums up the essence of hereditary monarchy. The present incumbent dies, the institution remains. In this case, the Queen is dead, long live the King, is not quite as resonant, because something of the institution dies with her. The respect that people gave the monarchy, because she was at its head. It's difficult to be Queen, the carefully judged words, the perpetual restraint, the essential shyness constantly conquered, the judgment honed over decades. Yet this impossible role was one that Queen Elizabeth aced and made her own. She had views of her own because sometimes she let them slip, but she managed somehow to contain them and to be queen for the country. Quite what a feat that dignity and restraint was will be seen when we compare her with King Charles, who isn't shy about sharing his opinions and giving way to the promptings of his heart. I'd always thought that she ought, with modern medicine, to outstrip the age 
of the late Queen Mother, or at least make it to 100 years. Alas, I was wrong. As a Vatican spokesman put it not long ago, she was arguably the last Christian monarch, more orthodox in her beliefs than most of the bishops of the church of which she was supreme governor. She never wavered in her faith in the traditional tenets of the Church of England, and she never lost a chance of conveying them. Her Christmas messages always conveyed something about the sacred nature of the feast. With equal fidelity, the BBC toned down any reference to it in its summary of the message. Who now represents Christianity to a nation summed up in that dispiriting phrase of all faiths and none? She was a woman of faith, and this faithful servant has now gone to her reward. Britain will be a lesser nation without the Queen. The country can stand taller because this very small woman was its monarch. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to cry when someone you don't know dies? Yet I cried when I heard the news about the Queen. And the funny thing is, a lot of other people did too. Requiescat and pace. That was Melanie McDonough. Now, Casey Bowles. How 10 Downing Street works or doesn't always reflects the character of the Prime Minister who inhabits it. Boris Johnson's number 10 was chaotic and scandal-ridden. Theresa May's indecision meant that hers was led by the will of her strong-minded advisers, not by her own agenda. David Cameron's was slick, but last minute. Liz Truss served in government under all three of them, and so witnessed all three approaches. She wants her Downing Street to be different. Even before Truss entered Downing Street on Tuesday, change was underway. After Number 10 earned a reputation in the past year as a louche place full of late-night drinking, aides have been told that the government is smartening up. There will be a shirt and tie dress code. But the more important change is structural. The old policy unit has been drastically slimmed down. The delivery unit, the data team and legislative affairs have been moved. In their place is a new economic unit, whose role is to help Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng take on the Treasury orthodoxy, the Truss spent so much of her leadership campaign railing against. In a bid to strengthen the relationship between Truss and her most important ministers, new offices are being created in Downing Street for both Wendy Morton, the new Chief Whip, and Therese Coffey, the Deputy Prime Minister. We've blown up the number 10 floor plan, says an aide. The idea is to create a leaner, nimbler operation, and slimming down doesn't just set an example to other departments. It's also intended to create higher accountability. Trust views a new economic approach as crucial to her premiership. As well as appointing a like-minded chancellor in her old friend Quateng, she wants Number 10 to have far more economic oversight. As such, Matthew Sinclair is joining as her chief economic advisor. Trust knows Sinclair from his think tank days, when he was director of the Taxpayers' Alliance, and specialised in attacking wasteful government spending. History shows that such a move can lead to friction. Nigel Lawson quit as Chancellor over Alan Walter's role as Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor. Aides believe Truss and Quartang are too closely aligned to have such issues. His mantra in the role is to facilitate, not emasculate and that he too needs backup to fight Treasury officials who are instinctively opposed to the deficit finance tax cuts, which have become Truss's signature policy. The number 10 operation will be led by Mark Philbrook, a political strategist who set up a business Linton Crosby. The appointment is not without criticism, seeing as Philbrook has little experience of government and isn't exactly a Trust loyalist. He worked for two of her leadership rivals this summer, Nadim Zahori, then Penny Mordaunt, before joining her team. 
However, the view is that a senior figure, who's 60, was needed given the relative youth of Truss's longer-standing aides. Fulbrook is regarded as a unifier who's liked by many Tory MPs. He's good at boosting team morale, says a colleague. He is happy to celebrate others' achievements. The Prime Minister's circle is tight-knit. Her advisers bonded over group dinners at Chevening, the country house used by foreign secretaries, as she made her plans for government. There are about 10 aides with key roles, says one member of Truss's inner circle. After the official victory party for supporters on Monday night in Cannon Street, Truss and her closest staff ended up going back to Admiralty House for a private drink. Already some MPs say they feel sidelined. Loyalty has become a defining part of Truss's government. Her cabinet is largely made up of those who backed her for the leadership and there are almost no Rishi Sunak supporters. The purge has upset those MPs who now think they will be left out in the cold. Her margin of victory wasn't huge. She should have acknowledged that and reached out, says one who backed Sunak. The preference for loyalty runs deeper still. Ministers have been told they cannot hire aides without approval from Philbrook. Already some candidates have been vetoed. If Truss appoints people she trusts, it should mean in theory that she would be able to devolve decisions. The restructure is meant to empower cabinet ministers. She would like most policy to come from departments, working closely on her clear instructions. Part of the reason for the slimming down of the number 10 policy unit is the view that it creates policy for the sake of it. Should the devolving fail, it will fall to an enforcer-in-chief to push things through, Zahori, the new head of the cabinet office, who is a close ally of Philbrook. The delivery unit is now under his watch, where he is reunited with the civil servant Emily Lawson, with whom he worked on the vaccine rollout. If Kwasi is going to be a chief finance officer, Zahori will be a chief operating officer, explains an ally. Zahori has had to work quickly on a charm offensive, given that many of the civil servants he has inherited feel rather snubbed to have been pushed out of number 10. In Whitehall, proximity is regarded as power. Trying to slim down the operation isn't a new idea. Lots of prime ministers have started off doing it, only to bulk up staff members as they run into problems. Some of Truss's supporters are speculating that the number 10 roles will change before the year is out. But for now, she wants not to just lead by example, but also to make sure that those around her are the people she can rely on, the people who got her into number 10 in the first place. If her approach goes to plan, her Downing Street will be hailed as a nimble and lean operation. If things start to go wrong, it will be criticised as short-staffed and inexperienced. With so many crises ahead, the verdict might not be long in coming. And that was Katie Balls. Next, Nigel Richardson. Some detectorists will tell you that the holy grail of metal detecting is a hoard of Roman coins or Anglo-Saxon jewellery. Others will point out, borrowing a line from the TV series Detectorists, that actually the holy grail of metal detecting is the holy grail. Since I took up metal detecting last summer, I have tried to set myself more modest goals. They can be summed up in some wise words spoken to me in a field in Wiltshire after I'd suffered a near barren day my only finds having been a musket ball and can slaw, a shredded drinks can. A find is a bonus, a good find is a good bonus, said my fellow detectorist with a consoling hand on my shoulder. My companion could afford to be sanguine. He was none other than the great Dave Crisp, finder of the Froom hoard of Roman coins, 52,503 of them, in 2010, and a poster boy for metal detecting, due to the exemplary way in which he alerted the archaeological authorities 
once he'd unearthed the hoard. The day I went out with Dave on the North Wessex Downs, he bagged another half-dozen Romans, scattered across a field where he reckoned there had been a camp. It was his permission, land on which the owner permits you to detect, and he had taken me there to enable me to find my first Roman coin, a rite of passage for detectorists. In other words, he had led the horse to water, but the horse was unable to drink, and now stood there long-faced, a parched, useless dobbin. This sense of failure and envy of other detectorists' success had become familiar to me in my fledgling detecting career. I tried to fight it, I really had, but it would just pop up, most shamefully a few months earlier in a freshly cut field in Oxfordshire. Muffled up despite the humidity, a man was detecting near me when he shouted out, Hammered! and performed a brief jig in the stubble, a mini version of the gold dance that detectorists are supposed to do when they find the ultimate precious metal. Finding a hammered coin, handmade, usually medieval, is another yardstick by which detectorists measure themselves, and, needless to say, I was yet to find one. So when I witnessed this performance, I felt sick to the stomach. My mood darkened further when the detectorist walked over and insisted on sharing the moment with me. Then he explained why it meant so much. He had spent the previous few months undergoing treatment for cancer. This was the first time in a long time he had been outdoors and it had paid off with a lovely little find. Life was not, after all, unrelenting misery. Though he didn't know it, he showed me how to become a better person, as unwittingly did other detectorists. People like wise old Dave Crisp and a blind chap called Dean who lost his sight in adulthood but still has a detailed map of his bit of Romney Marsh in his head. I do find stuff. I'm not a complete waste of space as a detectorist, but I have come to realise that metal detecting is not really about finding hordes or hammers. At the risk of sounding cheesy, it's about digging out and prizing the best bits of yourself. Mind you, I've practised the gold dance just in case. That's everything for this week, but if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson. Please join us again next week.